It says of the Lord Jesus Christ, from verse 6 of Philippians 2, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. A literal translation of that would be, he thought that deity was nothing to be grasped after. He didn't need to seek after deity or godhood, because he is God. But, even though it says here, being in the form of God, he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. And the word is doulos, it means slave. And was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man. Here are the words I want us to think about today. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of of the cross. He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. We've been speaking about the subject of justification uh, for a few weeks. I want to revisit the topic today and say some more things about it. Really, the doctrine of justification is like a diamond. If you've ever seen a big diamond, it will have many facets. You can look at it from various angles, and according to how you hold it under the light, it will shine and glisten in a certain way. Justification is that diamond, but there are many different ways of looking at it. There are many different truths that you can bring out of it. There are many different aspects, different facets to the doctrine. And so today I want to go a little further and speak about how it is that believers are justified what it means to be justified by the life and death of Christ. You'll see in our text that it mentions the Lord becoming obedient. There's the life of Christ. And then it says, unto death, even the death of the cross, there's the death of Christ. If you like, he became obedient, there's the life, there's the living of Christ. The doing of Christ. And then there's the death of Christ, the dying of Christ. Believers in Christ are justified, that is to say their sins are all forgiven, and they are accounted perfectly righteous in God's sight on one ground only. And that is the ground of the vicarious living and dying of the Lord Jesus. When we use the word vicarious, it really means in the place of, or in the stead of, when someone suffers vicariously, they suffer in your place. And so the living and the dying of the Lord Jesus is the ground of our justification. We've talked about the fact that God is holy and God is just. He's just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. So that brings before us the doctrine of divine justice. And divine justice demands the perfect satisfaction of the law. The one who is just will not look at the law and look at the criminal and say the law doesn't matter. Just let's set aside the law and let's just be merciful to the sinner. That's not how it works. The law must be upheld. Its precepts have to be carried out. And in the gospel, it is no different. <clears throat> Divine justice demands the perfect satisfaction of God's law. And every one of us has broken God's law. We're sinners. That's what 
a sinner is. He's one who has transgressed and broken God's law. And of course, the sinner is in a terrible position because he is unable, having broken the law, by virtue of the weakness of his flesh, he's unable to render the necessary obedience to the precepts of the law in order that he might be justified. So this is where Christ comes in. And if you were to turn over with me, and you can if you want to, to Romans chapter 8, and look at verses 3 and 4, you'll find there these words. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh. And we must understand he's not denigrating the law or saying that there's something deficient about the law. He's pointing out that the law is not able to save because of the weakness of our flesh. That's what it means when it says what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. In other words, we, we can't do it. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh that in order that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. Basically it's saying there Christ is the solution to our problem. We're not able to provide God with the righteousness that is needed to satisfy his law but Christ is the solution. Christ is the answer. What we could never do God has done, and he's done it for us in the person and work of his dear son. There are two great necessities that the Lord has provided for us for justification. Number one, he obeyed fully and completely the demands of God's law. And number two, he paid the penalty of the broken law in his death. These are the two matters that are at the very center of justification. Two great necessities. He obeyed perfectly the demands of the law and he paid the penalty of the law that was broken. How did he do it? He did it by his life and by his death. In one of our hymns it says, Even then shall this be all my plea. Jesus hath lived, hath died for me. And so we can refer to this as the doing and dying of Christ. And this is the ground of our justification. This is how we are saved, by what Christ has done and by what he has suffered. Let's think of these two and look at the doctrine of how justification works. The doing of Christ. This is his vicarious obedience obedience to the law of God. And when I say vicarious, again, let me emphasize it means in behalf of or in the stead of others. Now, there are theologians that will sometimes refer to the active and passive obedience of Christ. His active and passive obedience. When they mean, when they talk about his active obedience, they're referring to the life that he lived. When they talk about his passive obedience, they're talking about the death that he died. But I'm going to unpack that a little more in a moment because it's important that we understand this truth or these twin truths. The active obedience of Christ, the doing of Christ, it refers to his righteous living on this earth. See, the Lord lived on this earth for 33 plus years. And during that time, he obeyed God's law perfectly. 
Now, just think about that for a moment. There's none of us who are parents that have had perfect children, though we might think they are, but they're not. And they have ways of proving that to us when they're not very old. One of the first words that children learn is no. You want them to say yes, and they'll say no. Where does that come from? Well, it comes naturally. Because in the heart of every child, there is foolishness, the Bible says. Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child. No matter how much you think little Johnny, butter wouldn't melt in his mouth, or little Susie, uh, she's a, a perfect little angel. They're both little fallen angels is what they are. And they'll soon prove that to you if you let them alone. And if you let them go their own way, it will not end well. And there's so much that I could say about that. But the Lord Jesus Christ from a child never did anything wrong. Ever. Never once did he answer back Mary and Joseph. Never once did he refuse to obey a command that they gave to him. Never once did a curse word or a blasphemy ever come off his lips. He was literally a perfect child. We know that because the Bible says that in him was no sin. He had no sin and he did no sin. That's what the Bible says. He did no sin. And that includes his entire life. That doesn't mean from age 12 or 15 when he started to understand what sin was. No, right from the beginning, he was sinless, perfect. And that was true of his entire life. Remember when he was being baptized, the father said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved son, he said at the time of the transfiguration. Hear ye him. And the Lord Jesus himself, when he was praying, he said, Father, thou hearest me always. Perfect life. He lived his life in perfect conformity to God's law. You go through the Ten Commandments, he kept every one of them perfectly. Perfectly. And the great thing is that his obeying God's law in his life was vicarious. That means it counts for us. It counts for us who believe on him. It has rightly been said that if the Lord had not lived the life that he did, then his death could not have been counted as substitutionary at all. But he did live a perfect life. And by that life he earned righteousness. Listen to this. Galatians chapter 4, it speaks of Christ coming into the world in the fullness of the time. God's time. You might wonder why was it that Jesus was born in that particular era? Well, it's because, as Galatians 4 verse 4 says, but when the fullness of the time was come, God's time, God's calendar, God sent forth his Son made of a woman made under the law to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. Christ lived a holy life of conformity to God's law. He kept it perfectly. And when we think of this, it means that he was under the rules that we were under. But he kept perfectly the law for us. Philippians chapter 2 verse 8 tells us 
He became obedient unto death. His entire life was a life of obedience. And that obedience in his life counts for all his people. Now, we look at Romans chapter 5, and it's really a pivotal chapter in the New Testament when it comes to the doctrine of salvation and the idea that Adam is a federal head and Christ is a head of his people. We'll come to that in a moment. But if you look at Romans 5, verses 18 and 19, it says that therefore as by the offense of one, that's Adam, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, that's Christ, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, that's Adam's disobedience, many were made sinners, and the word really is more rightly to be translated constituted sinners. They were constituted sinners. So by the obedience of one, that's Christ, shall many be constituted righteous. Yes, the Lord came to die for us, but he also came to live for us. And this is a most important doctrine when it comes to justification. Jesus hath lived, hath died for me, as the hymn puts it. Look with me at Psalm number 40. Psalm 40. You will perhaps know already that a number of the Psalms are messianic. That is to say, they focus on the Messiah. They're all about him. And this is one of these messianic Psalms. Psalm 40. And when you come to verses 7 and 8, you have what is effectively a messianic prophecy. Look at it. Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me. I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. If you keep your finger there and you go over to Hebrews chapter 10, you'll find there in verse number 7 that the apostle applies those words of the psalm to Christ. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 7. Let's, let's read verse uh, 7 down a couple of verses, beginning at verse 7. Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. Above, when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This is a messianic prophecy that's made in Psalm 40, verses 7 and 8. And again, we remember those words at the official commencement of his ministry. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Matthew chapter 3 and verse number 15. It's right there in the Scripture. And it's accompanied by these words. Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it or allow it to be so now, that is, to be baptized, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. You see that? It becometh us, Christ himself, to fulfill all righteousness. He came to live a righteous life. 
the life that God required of you and me, which we were not able to provide. As believing sinners, when we come to him, his righteous life counts for us. We're back to the doctrine of imputation. That word impute, imputation, imputed. It means reckoned to your account. Like I said in another message, you have in the debit column your sin. But then in the credit column, you have Christ's righteousness, and he takes that debit, he takes that sin upon himself. And you're left with that credit, his full righteousness. It is imputed to you. It's counted as yours. It's against your name. So you can stand before the Lord perfectly righteous. That's an amazing thing. I'm not perfectly righteous in myself, and neither are you. Far from it. But in Christ, we have a righteousness imputed to us, reckoned to our account. It, it is beside our name. And this is the doctrine that Paul expounds in Romans chapter 5. Let's go back there. Romans chapter 5. This chapter really centers on two men. There's the first man, the first man who was created. And there's the second man who is the Lord from heaven who is not created, despite what the Jehovah's false witnesses tell you. Not a created being. He is the creator. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So you have Adam, the created one. You have Christ, who is the creator. But you'll notice here that there's the first Adam, and in the Bible, Christ is referred to in 1 Corinthians 15 as the last Adam. And you've got to be careful with your terminology. Stick with the Bible terminology. The Bible doesn't say the second Adam. It says the second man. And it says the last Adam. Now here's Adam. And here's Christ. So let's read from Romans 5 from verse 12. Wherefore as by one man, and that's obviously Adam, sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men for that or in that all have sinned. So there's the one responsible for the sinful human race, Adam, who sinned. And all men then became or were constituted sinners. Now we go on down the chapter and we read all about Adam and how the death reigned from Adam to Moses, etc., etc. Then you come down to what it says about Christ. Verse 17, For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, that's Adam, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Then come these verses that I read a few minutes ago. Verse 19, for example, For as by one man's disobedience, that's Adam, many were constituted sinners. So by the obedience of one, that Jesus Christ, shall many be made righteous. Here's the truth. Legally, God deals with all men in terms of two individuals. You and I today, and this applies to everybody, we are seen by God in one of two ways. We're either in Adam or we're in Christ. We're in Adam or we're in Christ. That's how God deals with men. Go to 1 Corinthians 15, and it's clearly stated in verse 22. 
For as in Adam, you see that? In Adam all die. Even so, in Christ shall all be made alive. So all who are in Adam die. All who are in Christ will be made alive. You still with me here? The entire human race, we read in Romans 5, is guilty through Adam's disobedience. We've all been rendered, we've all been constituted sinners. That's our plight. But all who are in Christ, and he's talking about believing sinners, sinners who have come to him by faith, they are counted righteous and free from the penalty of death. Think about Adam. His sin was imputed to the whole human race, and it was imputed justly. He was what we call in theology the federal head of the race, a representative man. That's why God could say, in Adam, all men are sinners. Because when Adam sinned, we all sinned. Because we were in Adam. But then we think about Christ. His righteousness, on the other hand, is justly imputed, reckoned by God to all that believe. His life counts for them. So, let's get it straight. If you're an unbeliever, you're still in Adam. All men are in Adam by nature. But in order to be saved, to be justified, you must be in Christ. And this is the teaching of Ephesians chapter 2. Paul is writing to a church full of people who had been quickened, people who had been saved, people who had been brought to trust in Christ, Gentiles who were far from God. The description is it uh, very clear here in Ephesians 2 and verse 12. At that time, ye were without Christ. That's the condition of all men by nature. That's what was the case in Ephesus. They were all without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise. All those promises God had given to his people, they didn't belong to them. And it says here, having no hope and without God in the world. And that's where people are that are not saved. If I'm speaking to anybody today, either here or online, and you're not in Christ, you're without hope, and you're without God in the world. You might say your prayers, but you're not really praying. You're not in communion with God. You're separated from God by your sins. There's a barrier between you and God because you have not been reconciled to Him. This was the case with the Ephesians. They were without Christ. They were without hope. They were without God in the world. What a terrible position to be in. But look at verse 13. Hallelujah. But now, now in Christ Jesus. See, he says in verse 12, at that time. He talks about in verse 11, in time past. But now, hallelujah, but now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off, are made nigh or near by the blood of Christ. So you're no longer without Christ if you're a believer. You're no longer outside of the covenants of promise. They belong to you. You're in Christ. You're no longer in Adam. You're in Christ. And therein is salvation. This great truth that you're either in Adam or in Christ is at the heart of the gospel. Paul teaches, therefore, in Romans 5, that our legal standing before God, either for our condemnation or our justification, our acquittal from all charges, depends on who we are in union with. 
That's where your safety or otherwise lies. Are you in union with Adam still? Or are you in union with Christ? You're either still linked to your first father, Adam, as his progeny. You're a condemned sinner. Or you're linked in union with the Lord Jesus Christ. And every believer, thank God, can say, I am in Christ. And therefore, God views Christ's perfect obedience as being mine. As Christ is accepted with God fully, we are accepted in him. Look at how the Lord Jesus prayed about this in the great high priestly prayer of John 17. This is such a thrilling truth when you get a hold of it. John 17, the Lord Jesus is praying to the Father. And he says here in verse 23. I in them, and thou in me, that they, that's believers, may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and watch this, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. You know how the Father loves Christ? He loves him perfectly. There's never a moment when the Father doesn't love the Son. Bible says it in, in Matthew, the Father loveth the Son. The Father loveth the Son. He loves him perfectly. And yet, in the Lord's own prayer, he says of his people, Thou hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Can you get that into your heart today as a believer? That God loves you the way he loves Christ. He loves you the way he loves Christ. I can't get my head around that. But I know it's true. Believers are in Christ. And God views his perfect obedience as being their perfect obedience. As Christ is accepted with God, they are accepted before God in him. And think about it again. Jesus never did a wrong deed. He never said a wrong word. He never thought a wrong thought. He never failed to live up to God's law. He never departed from it. He lived an absolutely perfect life. And by that means he earned righteousness for all those that believe. So God looks upon you, if you're in Christ, as having never done a wrong word, never having said a wrong word, done a wrong deed, thought a wrong thought. That's how you appear before God. How could that be? Because we've all done wrong deeds. We've all said wrong words. We've all thought wrong thoughts, and we've failed to do the things that are right. But Jesus did it for us. And so we speak rightly of his substitutionary death, don't we? His vicarious death. He died for us. More rightly, he died as us. And so we ought also to refer to his substitutionary life. We talk about him dying as a substitute, but he lived as a substitute. He lived the life that we needed to live, but we could not. A pure and righteous life of obedience to his law. This is why the hymn writer could say, Upon a life I did not live. Upon a death I did not die. Another's life, another's death, I rest my all eternity. Jesus hath lived, hath died 
for me. For me as a believer in Christ, the Lord Jesus has entirely fulfilled the law of God. I have no righteousness of my own. The people think they're going to bring to God this offering, this, this life of theirs. That's like Cain, the brother of Abel, bringing to God the fruit of the ground, the works of his hands. I'm sure it was beautifully arranged. I'm sure it was wonderfully set out. I'm sure it was the best of the crops and the fruit that he had. But it's not what God wanted. What God wanted was a vicarious sacrifice which Abel brought. He brought the little kid or the lamb and offered it up. Picture of Christ dying for our sins. I have no righteousness of my own, but Christ is my righteousness. We sang it, didn't we? Jehovah Sidkenu. The Lord, our righteousness. He is our righteousness. Why should the Lord allow me into heaven? Because Christ is my righteousness. He is my righteousness. Paul repeats that truth in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 30. He's made unto us righteousness. And I can only, and you can only be constituted righteous, viewed as perfectly righteous by virtue of his obedience. You see, the Lord Jesus has become, by grace, legally liable for me. He never was a sinner, but he took the sinner's place. He became answerable for me at the bar of divine judgment. He stood there to answer the charges against my name. And the doing of Jesus, the life of Jesus, meets entirely the law's demands for me and for all who trust in him. This is vicarious obedience. That's the first part. The second part is the dying of Jesus. He became obedient unto death. We've dealt with that. Even the death of the cross. Here's the vicarious suffering of that which is the penalty of the broken law. Now I said at the beginning, theologians will talk about the active and passive obedience of Christ. The active obedience being his life. The passive obedience being his death. But you know, that term is often misunderstood. It is kind of misleading to talk about his death as passive because as one preacher put it, Christ was never more active as when he was dying in our guilty room instead. Now theologians will use the word passive, but they use it according to its Latin etymology, its Latin origin. When theologians would talk about the death of Christ being passive, the word passive in their minds meant capable of suffering capable of suffering. That's all it means. But let me tell you that Christ was not a passive sufferer in his death. Far from it. He was never more active as when he was dying on the cross. Notice this in John chapter 10. The Lord is speaking as the good shepherd that given his life for the sheep. And he explains what happened when he gave his life. John 10 from verse 17 and 18. John 10, 17. Therefore doth my father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. It's not that he's just this passive sufferer, do to me what you will. He is active in his death. 
He's laying down his life. That's why it says in the Bible, there in the Gospels, that when he died, he gave up the ghost. In that sense, his life was not taken from him. His life was laid down in sacrifice. He went freely to the cross, not kicking and screaming as many criminals would have done. But he went there to offer up himself as a sacrifice to divine justice. We are lawbreakers. We've broken God's law. There's a penalty for that. It has to be visited upon our breach of the law and our failure to keep it. This is death. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. You get paid what you deserve to get paid. The wages of sin is death. That's the penalty. But Jesus could die for our sins and take our place because he had no sin of his own. He could never have saved us if he had to die for his own sins. If he had had sins of his own, he would not have been our saviour. He would not be God. But he had no sin of his own. And because we could never satisfy God's just penalty, which is why, incidentally, hell is forever. The doctrine of annihilation is a heresy. One and done. Punished and that's it. That's not the Bible teaching. The Bible teaching is the wrath of God abideth upon the unbeliever. It abideth. It's abiding wrath. You know why? Because God's justice is never appeased by the sinner's death in hell. It has to be forever. They continue to suffer the just penalty of the law being broken. Sinners can never satisfy the justice of God, you see. But Jesus perfectly obeyed the law unto death, as we've noted, and in his death he paid the penalty and he received the just wages of sin for his people. He got paid for what we did. Romans 5 verse 8, Christ died for, hooper, for the ungodly, in their place, in their stead. See, at Calvary, what Jesus did was to bear all of our sins upon himself. He took the responsibility for them. He took the curse of sin upon him. In fact, he was made a curse for us, suffering the full penalty of God's broken law. Galatians 3.13 says it, that Christ was made a curse for us, because cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. So what's the result of that? The demands of God's law, death, are met. Its curse is silenced. Which is why, as we noted in Colossians chapter 2, uh, when we preached on that passage, it says in verse 14, Colossians 2 and verse 14, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. What does that mean? When criminals were put on the cross by the Romans for judgment, for death, they used to put a list of their charges there. Here's why this man is suffering the death that he's suffering. Here are the charges. But all the charges that were made against us, which were justly made against us, the Bible says that Jesus blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, the law, which was contrary to us. He took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. In other words, the condemnation of the law upon our sin was removed by him. And therefore, the curse of the law is silenced. 
Jesus died for his people. He died as his people. This is vicarious atonement. It's the, it's the universal teaching of the Bible. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. 1 Peter 2.24 He died the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus, as I've pointed out already, was never a sinner. He never was. But yet, that we who believe in him might be justified before his law, our sins were reckoned against his name. They were imputed to him. So he was viewed on the cross as guilty and liable to punishment. So legally, in the eyes of God's law, the pure Savior was viewed as the sinner and punished by God on that account. No wonder when the Lord was in the garden, he said, let this cup pass from me. It's no wonder he cried on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You talk about loneliness and abandonment. He had always been from eternity in perfect fellowship with the Father, always. But here he is on the cross. He's bearing our sins. The father turns his face away. He abandons his son. Just as the Lord will say to those that are lost in that great day, depart from me. I never knew you. Effectively on the cross, the father said to Christ, depart from me. He was abandoned by the father and punished for our sins. Because in the eyes of the law, he was viewed as the sinner. Legally, God deals with Christ in terms of our sins. But here's the great gospel truth. Praise his name. He deals with us in terms of Christ's righteousness. So what a transaction of grace this is. My sins laid to his account. His righteousness put to my account. The life that he earned becomes mine. The death that I earned becomes his. What a glorious message. This is the ground of our salvation. And what grounds we have here for assurance and peace. You know, some of the hymns that we sing at communion bring me to tears. I'm quite an emotional chap, as people recognize But there's nothing that moves my soul more than some of those hymns that we sing at the Lord's table. And one is that great hymn of Horatius Bonner. Every time we sing this particular stanza, I can hardly sing it. Mine is the sin, but thine the righteousness. Mine is the guilt, but thine the cleansing blood. Here is my robe, my refuge, and my peace. Thy blood, thy righteousness, O Lord my God. What great assurance there is here. I am trusting in his work for me, and I'm not trusting in my own work. If he has satisfied divine justice, lived and died for me, paid the price and suffered the penalty for my sin, then how can I ever be condemned? while hiding in him. 
I can never be lost. Old Augustus Toplady, whose hymns I love, he said, From whence this fear and unbelief? Hath not the Father put to grief his spotless Son for me? And will the righteous judge of men condemn me for that debt of sin which Lord was charged on thee? Complete atonement thou hast made, and to the utmost thou hast paid whate'er thy people owed. How then can wrath on me take place, if sheltered in thy righteousness and sprinkled with thy blood, if thou hast my discharge procured, and freely in my room endured the whole of wrath divine, payment God cannot twice demand, first at my bleeding surety's hand, and then again at mine. Turn then, my soul, unto thy rest. The merits of thy great high priest have bought thy liberty. Trust in his efficacious blood, nor fear thy banishment from God, since Jesus died for thee. There's a story told of a farmer whose property was in great danger from a bush fire. Such were the winds, such was the power of the fire and the speed at which it was travelling. And his farm and farmhouse was in the direct line of that fire. It was all his property. Everything he owned was going to be destroyed. And he had an idea. I'm going to burn up some of the property before the fire ever gets here. I'm going to set fires, controlled fires they're called, here, there and yonder, and make a huge circle around my farm so that all that land, acres, would be already scorched. And then I'm going to stand right in the middle of the ashes. And when I do that, when that fire comes to the edge of the ground that has already been burned, there's no fuel for it any longer, and the fire will go out. He found that his safety was standing where the fire had already been. See the connection here to the gospel. God's wrath has been spent on Jesus Christ. The fire of God's wrath has burned against him for my sin. The only place of safety for me is to stand where the fire has been. To be in Christ. To be trusting in him. So that I'll be able to say, like Top Lady did, the terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do. My Saviour's obedience and blood Hide all my transgressions from view. In closing today, let me ask you, are you standing where the fire has already been? It's the only place of safety. We are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This is the only ground of justification. May the Lord enable you by faith to take your stand upon it today.